Good morning, Renaissance. We're not blind. Uh, we're not deaf here. We look and we see what's happening in the world. And uh, as Renaissance, uh, one thing that we have done since the first day is make sure that we're sensitive and respond to the things that are happening in the world. And as you know, many of you have looked at your TV screens and you've seen what's happening in Charlottesville. And what we like to do, what we hope to do, what we intend to do as a family of God is when these incidents unfortunately happen, we do what we call a prayer of lament, where we come together in corporate prayer and really look to mourn with those who mourn and respond in a way that God's family, the light, should respond. So I'll share with you um, our prayer of lament. Father God, you are close to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. We may understand these words, but today we really need to feel it. God, we need you to hear it. The sadness, anger, fear, distrust, and confusion. Because it seems no matter how far we've come, it still feels like we're far from a solution. We know you could feel the pain, terror, and destruction because you know what it feels like for crowds of people to be against you, hurling insults, looking to couch you outside the city gates. Look at how they rejected you. Oh, God, we are simply not crying out how, because we already know sin which goes unchecked and unchallenged will only grow. So what do we do in our country? Tis of thee, which to this day still suffers from the sin of white supremacy. Lord, have mercy on a world that's crumbling right in front of us. Many say this is not our America. Well, it is for the most of us, a host of us, made in God's image. But incidents like Charlottesville tried to tell us we came with a blemish and that this is not our home and that we need to stay in our place, hearkening eerily to a time where that message included dogs, hoses, and mace, or men with hoods on their face. So God, give us the strength to seek your own and the courage to make our hearts your home, our homes, our families, our churches, our brothers, our sisters, our mothers, our fathers. Take a look at each other. It's the worst thing. Rather, it's the worst thing when those who've tasted the scandalous grace of God make comfort their true king and act like these incidents aren't really a thing with any gospel implication. So many pastors call it a political issue so they can avoid dealing with the complications. Free speech, the costliness of silence. Sin, sin which goes unchecked and unchallenged will turn to hardness of heart and often lead to violence. But not simply violence against the flesh, but violence against the spirit. How could a Christian protester with a conscience not let the word of God sear it or see our brothers and sisters crying for years and refuse to hear it? Holy Spirit, come and fill this place. Bring us healing. With your warm embrace, we shout, let freedom ring. But I question how loudly it's rung when so many of the protesters in Charlottesville look so very young. Our hearts continue to break because of those whose hearts don't seem to be working. Where love and grace fail to show, hatred and racism still seem to be lurking. While it is true, let us not lead with saying God is in control. Since all God's children need to know first, you are a God that can console. Our hearts so broken, our wounds so open, until we sit in and acknowledge the ugliness of what we are seeing, we will never be able to close them. 
God, please hold them. The higher family and all the victims of this past weekend, those who were there firsthand and those who, by merely seeing it, were emotionally weakened. Guide our prayer for our brothers and sisters in Charlottesville and around the country who feel threatened, less safe, and less at home at home. We pray for the spiritually blind who see grace as something they've earned, who have been so consumed by fear and hatred that they no longer recognize the cross that they now burn. Answer us, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to us and guide us in our desire to mourn with those who are mourning and be spurred on to the good works fueled by our hope in your righteousness and justice. Give us the curse to face the sins within us, our families, churches, and our country that have gone unchecked and unchallenged for far too long. As Martin Luther King said, help us accept finite disappointment but never lose infinite hope. We find our hope in you, Lord, who reign forever and has conquered everything, including sin and death, for our salvation. And God, all God's people said, amen. I'll be also sharing uh, the scripture of today. Uh, we'll be looking at the book of Luke, chapter 22, verses 54 to 62. If you don't have a paper Bible, we'll also have it on the screen, on the left and the right. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, somewhere else, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, Another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you are talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, right now, I'll be uh, introducing a family member, someone who is uh, quite familiar with uh, the Renaissance family, our brother Chris Travis. Show him some love. Thanks. So um, I want to comment on the things that happened over this weekend uh, before we get into the message. Now, whenever these things happen, I, I'm always left feeling um, like I don't really have a right to speak into it. Um, unsure what to say, but I also recognize that um, there are times in life when saying nothing is way worse than accidentally saying the wrong thing. So I, I want to give it my best shot, and I hope that you'll be gracious with me. Here are the things that rise up in me to say about this. The first thing I want to say is that in spite of the vague terminology about white nationalists or um, blame on many sides and all that kind of thing, this is white supremacy that we're talking about. Uh, the symbols of the Nazi flag, the Confederate flag, burning torches, these are symbols of terror, of domestic terrorism, and they represent decades of domestic terrorism. And I just want you to hear me say that in case you started to feel like maybe you're going a little bit crazy. Uh, if, we, if we will not stand up and speak out about people standing behind the Nazi flag on American streets, I mean, we fought a whole world war to contain the Nazis. I, I don't know what we would stand up and speak out 
again. So I just want you to know that it is white supremacy that instigated the violence that happened uh, over this weekend. Having said that, um, well, yeah, thank you. Having said that, um, I also am old enough now to know a little bit of what I don't know. And I know that I can never really understand how those events can make some of you feel. I do want you to know that I try. I actually try. I imagine it. I try to empathize. But I recognize no matter how close I get, the best I can ever hope for is secondhand. So I really don't have any advice for you. But I do want you to know that if you have anything you want to say to me, I will listen to you very carefully. Uh, And lastly, I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for welcoming me and my wife and my two little boys into this incredible spiritual family we have together. I want to say thank you for helping to um, make manifest the vision that our pastor Jordan has cast for us so many times about a truly reconciled church, diverse ethnically and in many other ways, uh, people that are different from one another, surrounded around and connected together through and by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is like a dream come true for me to get to be a part of a church like this. It's like a dream come true for me to get to see my little boys growing up with your little boys and your little girls. And I just want to say um, thank you for that, and I love you all very much. Um, okay, let me say, um, let me say uh, so I talked to Jordan yesterday, and he said, go on with the message. So that's what we're going to do. Um, So let me say a short prayer, and we will get into it. Lord Jesus, I pray that some word that is heard would be yours. Amen. You you guys like that prayer? That's actually, okay, this is not part of the message. That's a prayer Mr. Rogers used to pray every time before he got up to do his program. If you don't know about Mr. Rogers, you've got to read about this guy's life. But when I heard about that prayer, I said, that's my prayer. That's the prayer, whether I say it out loud or silently, that's the prayer I pray every time before I get up to speak. Let some word that is heard be yours. Okay. When I was a little boy, um, I remember this time when there was another little boy in school who was talking bad about his mom. His mom was a real piece of work. And I wanted to join in on the conversation, so I said something bad about my mom. And I instantly had this sinking feeling in my stomach like that is just not right. I just felt it. I didn't need anyone else to tell me it was wrong. There was something inside me that just knew that was not a right thing to do. I had a really great mom for one, but regardless, I just could feel it in my heart, in my conscience that that was not the right thing to do. And here we are decades later, I'm a grown man now, and I can still remember that instant like it happened yesterday. Or I can go back even further than that. I can go all the way back to kindergarten. I remember a time in kindergarten when I went to the back of the class during playtime or something, and on a bookshelf in the back of the class, I saw a little roll of quarters taped together. It was less than $2 in quarters. Probably some kid's lunch money or milk money. Someone set it down there, and I saw it, and I took it. Now, you can look in from the outside and say, whatever, you were five years old, you didn't know any better. No. I knew. I remember. I knew. I saw those quarters. I knew they were not mine. I knew it was not right for me to take them, and I took them anyway. And here I am, a grown man standing in front of you. I can remember that, and when I think back on that moment, I almost have like a physical reaction to it. It almost makes you want to cringe. Also in kindergarten, I had the little like dinky pack of crayons, the 12 pack of crayons, and there was this boy in kindergarten that had like the Cadillac pack of crayons, like the 128 count, like the three tiers, 
like everything from like key lime to fuchsia or whatever. And I was jealous. I remember this. I was jealous. I knew I couldn't ask my mom straight up for it because we didn't have a lot of money. And she would have said, sorry, sweetie, we can't get that. So I made up a lie. I told my mom, the kids at school are making fun of me because my pack of crayons are so dinky. Which that's a pretty inventive lie for a five-year-old. She bought it. And she went out and bought the crayons. And I could never enjoy them. I don't know if you have a memory like that. You have a memory like that when you think back and you almost have a physical reaction to it. There's, you, you violated something in yourself. You don't need anyone else to tell you whether it was right or wrong. You knew in your own conscience, your own sense of right or wrong. And it, it, you almost have a physical, re- it almost makes you cringe. There's like a pang. And I don't even have the courage to talk to you about my teenage years or my 20s or last year or last week. And we all have those things. You have those moments where you fail to live up to your own sense of right and wrong. And it, it's like this deep, like something presses on this nerve. And what I want to suggest to you is that our creator put that feeling there for a reason and it's trying to point us towards something. It's actually trying to point us towards life. Now, failure is one of the universal human experiences. Every single person in this room and every single person, every single man and woman you will ever connect eyes with in your life has failed. We've all struck out. Some of us quite literally, like the ball came across the home plate and that was it. Uh, Maybe it was a girl that said no, or the job interview that you bombed, or the exam that you had to retake, or the social situation that you keep replaying in your mind because you wish you hadn't said what you said. But all of us go through times in life when the pressure gets turned up, uh, things are stressful, and we say something or do something, something comes out and we realize, oh, I didn't even know that was in there, and you have that pang, that sense of violating your conscience. Now, people tend to respond to failure in a couple of different ways. This is a simplification, but people tend to either get determined or defeated when they fail. So some people, when they fail, it's like, I'm going to try harder. I'm never going to let that happen again. For example, my wife, uh, Lindsay, she took a, she's an actress in musical theater, and she took a dance class at a famous studio called Steps, which if you're in the entertainment business at all, you, you know this studio. And she went to take uh, advanced beginners tap for the first time. Now, apparently, she's explaining to me, advanced beginners is a no-joke class. When she took the advanced beginners ballet class, there was ballerinas from the New York City Ballet in that class. So this is a no-joke class. It's the first time she's doing it, and she's really trying to make her mark and be noticed by the instructor. Now, there's this thing in dance where if you get any kind of feedback from the instructor, even and especially negative feedback, criticism, it's a sign that you're on the right track because if you're way off, they don't even waste their breath on you. So she's trying to get some attention from this instructor. She's trying to get noticed, but it's like she doesn't even exist. The instructor never says anything about her. Meanwhile, the instructor has got all kinds of things to say about Ashley, whoever that is. Keep your chin up, Ashley. Great work, Ashley. You're the only one still keeping up, Ashley. Take your hand off your hip, Ashley. And she's talking up, Ashley, correcting Ashley. And my wife, she's putting in work. She's dancing her heart out, and she's looking sideways at Ashley, you know, trying to get the attention. That would look a lot better if she did that. I don't know how, how to do that. But she's mad trying to get the attention of this dance instructor, but nothing do it. The class completes. She never gets a word from her. And she's walking out of the studio, head down a little bit, 
And uh, my wife, Lindsay, walks by the instructor, and the instructor looks Lindsay in the eyes and says, great work today, Ashley. And Lindsay was like, oh, that's right. I'm Ashley. That's right. Determination can get you somewhere. I mean, if you, if you take that stance, I'm being defeated, I'm not making, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to try harder, I'm not going to let that happen again, it can get you somewhere in career goals and that sort of thing. But when it comes to trying to follow Jesus, determination is nowhere near up to the task. And you don't, ha- you don't have to take my word for that, you can try it for yourself. Try it for a day. Try to follow Jesus straight up, try to obey the Bible straight up for a day. I can't even avoid all the don'ts, let alone do all the do's, let alone do any of that for the right reason, with the right heart. Determination, it just falls short. Well, other people, and this is probably more common, when you face failure, um, they get defeated. And this takes different forms. Uh, The most common is just a kind of indifference like you brush it off or bury it, like, yeah, whatever, everybody makes mistakes, it's not a big deal, I do good things too, whatever, I, there's nothing that can be done about it, and you're just kind of indifferent about these things. Um, other people, it gets to a dark place, they defeat it, it gets depressed, there's negative messages in your mind, um, guilt, shame, I always do this, I always mess up, I'm a failure, I, I'm never going to get it right, and you get trapped by that. What I want to suggest to you today is that there is another way. There is a better way, and it is, in fact, the way to life. And the way I want to look at it is by looking at a moment in the life of a person from the Bible, a man named Peter, I want to look at his moment of ultimate failure. Now, Peter is a huge figure in the Bible. He's a huge figure in the history of the world. Peter was one of Jesus' most intimate followers. He was in the inner three. He got to see things other guys didn't do. He participated in, in major miracles. He's the only man in history that is recorded for us that walked on water other than Jesus. A billion Catholics today think of him as sort of the first pope. He was a massive leader in the early church. He wrote portions of the New Testament. He's this huge figure, not only in Christianity, but also in global history. But he wasn't always like that. When Jesus met him, he was a regular guy. When Jesus met him, he was a blue-collar guy. He was a fisherman, the type of guy that would have had dirt under his fingernails. Jesus came along the beach and saw Peter and his friends fishing, and they'd been fishing all night. They hadn't caught anything. And Jesus called out to them, throw your net out on the other side in the deeper water, and you'll find something. And Peter rolls his eyes because he knows this is nonsense, but he does it because it's Jesus. And they catch so many fish that the boats start to capsize. They can't hold all these fish in the boats. Now, we look at that, and we're like, okay, so, you know, you got lucky. You caught a bunch of fish. Maybe that's a miracle. That's kind of cool. But now Peter knew He was a professional fisherman. He'd never seen anything like this happen before. He's the one who knew that this was impossible. This was a miracle. And he falls on his knees and says, go away from me, Lord. I'm not worthy for you to even be in my presence. He's a regular guy. He starts to follow Jesus, but Jesus gives him a new identity. He wasn't always called Peter. When Jesus met him, he was called Simon. And Jesus gives him a new name. Jesus calls him Peter, which means the rock. And Jesus says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And if you watch the life of Peter through Scripture, what you see is these highs and lows of Peter moving back and forth from his old self to the new potential that Jesus is calling him to. And he's a really likable character. I mean, he's got some high highs and some low lows because he's kind of hard-headed. 
He's a man of action. He's the type of guy who would speak or do and then think about it afterwards. And so he does some incredible things like walk on water. He's the first one to look inside the tomb after Jesus was resurrected. But he also really puts his foot in his mouth and makes some big mistakes. So, for example, one time he pulls Jesus aside and kind of reprimands him about his strategy with this whole Messiah thing. And Jesus looks Peter in the eye and says, get behind me, Satan. Now, I don't know about you, but if Jesus looked me in the eye and said, get behind me, Satan, I might have to go cry a little bit just for a minute or two. I might need to go talk to my mom for just like a a minute or two to bounce back from that. That's a low, low. But the moment I want to take you to today is without a doubt, hands down, the lowest point of Peter's life. This is not one of those times when he just goofed up. This is the time when Peter failed. And I want you to see what happens on the other side of that failure. It appears in Luke chapter 2, verse 54 and following, the night that Jesus was arrested. It says, then seizing him, Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. He's probably wanting to help. He's probably wanted to see what was going to happen, maybe look for an opportunity to speak up for Jesus or speak up in his defense or maybe even get him out of there. So Peter follows along as they drag Jesus off into the night. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. So this, the house of the high priest is like a big mansion. It's like a villa with a walled courtyard. It's nighttime, it's cold, the servants gather around and they kindle a fire and they gather around the fire to keep warm, and Peter slips in among them. Now, this is a dangerous thing. It's a pretty bold thing, actually. Uh, Peter is in enemy-occupied territory, and this isn't just playing around. If they find him out, he's probably going to be imprisoned, tortured, crucified, just like Jesus is, who is being held in chains not far away from where Peter is. So this is a, a, a tense moment. Now, Peter slips in there, and after a while, in verse 56, a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him. Now, you can imagine how that must have felt. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. Imagine how vulnerable that moment felt. I don't know if you've ever been caught in a lie, like you lied and you know they they could tell that you were lying. This one time, I was trying to sound smarter than I really am, and so I quoted a line from the movie Amadeus. I know that dates me, but it's a movie about Mozart. It's a really good film. And I quoted it to my friend. I was trying to sound smarter than I am, so I was trying to pass this line off like it was an original thought for me. And my friend was like, yeah, man, I've seen Amadeus too. That feeling, I don't think any of us would like it if this was a magic microphone and anybody that I pointed it to, all your deepest secrets and all the thoughts running through your mind would just be on blast over the PA here, or the images in your mind or from your past would come up on the screens here. That feeling of vulnerability, of coming out into the light, of being exposed, that's the feeling that Peter is having right here. And he does what a lot of us do when that happens. He just doubles down. Verse 57, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. He's in full-out defensive mode right now. Now, it's easy to look out and judge him, but I think we can all relate to this experience. Like, it's one thing where you're at church to um, talk about how central Jesus is in your life, 
when there's a lot of people around that aren't going to challenge you and encourage you, but then you get back in your context or in your industry or on your block or around your cousins or whatever the case may be, and I think we've all felt this where you, you tone it down a little bit, you know, you, you, you soften it a little bit, maybe your language gets a little rougher. You don't, Jesus doesn't seem like he's as central there for you as here. And so I think, I think we can all understand what Peter's going through. And this isn't just, you know, a socially awkward situation. This is they're going to imprison him. They're going to beat him. They're potentially going to kill him. And so he's in full-out defensive mode. And about an hour later, a third person notices him in verse 59. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter and Jesus both came from the same hometown, Galilee. And uh, they probably had a distinct accent. It's a little backwater town. It was a rural town. And so this guy could tell Peter was a Galilean. And he's like, both of these guys came from the same hometown. Surely he's with him. And Peter replies, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And then it happens. Verse 60, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Flashback, previous evening, the Last Supper, Jesus' last meal with his friends. At one point, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And they all go around the table and say, not me, Lord, not I, Lord. And Peter says, no way, I will never betray you. And at some point, Jesus pulls Peter aside for a little heart-to-heart, and it, it went like this. Chapter 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon. Now, that's, that's interesting right there. He doesn't call him Peter. He doesn't call him his new name, the rock. He calls him Simon. Satan, the accuser, the adversary, the enemy, has asked to sift all of you as wheat. He's asked to sort you out, turn up the pressure, put you through some tense stuff and see what comes out. And I think most of you have probably recognized by now that that's exactly what life is going to do to you sometimes. It's going to sort you out, turn up the pressure, press you down, and see what really comes out. But, Jesus says in verse 32, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And Peter is thinking, when I've turned back, I'm not turning away from you. And he replies in verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, interesting. I tell you, Peter, Before the rooster crows today, before dawn breaks, you will deny three times that you know me. Fast forward to later that night, the soldiers come to take away Jesus. Judas betrays him with a kiss. They chain him, drag him, beat him, take him to the high priest's house. Peter follows along at a distance. He slips in among the servants around the fire, and after a while, a servant girl looks at him and says, weren't you with him? And Peter says, No, I don't know the man. A little while later, a man says, aren't you one of them? And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. And about an hour later, someone says, you got to be with him. You're from the same hometown as he is. And Peter says, I do not know what you're talking about. And just at that moment, verse 60, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. 
That's that moment. That's that moment for Peter, the cringe moment, that painful moment where things just got real. And what do you do with that? What do you do when you realize you have a dark side? What do you do when you fail? Well, I can tell you what most people do. Most people stuff it. It's too painful. We can't bring that out. We can't admit that because it threatens everything that we think we need. We think that if we admit that we're not perfect, that we, we fell down, especially that really sensitive thing, the thing we're embarrassed about, the thing we're ashamed of, if we admit that, then we think, well, I can't be loved. I'm, I won't be important. I won't have purpose. I can't be accepted. I won't have belonging. I won't really be a part of this thing. If they only knew, what would they think? It's too painful to bring that out, so we got to stuff it down. Now, some people stuff it down by being determined, hence the religions of the world. And some people, most people in our culture now, get defeated, indifferent. You just kind of push it away. It sounds like this. Yeah, it's true. I did but I do a lot of good things. And if you balance it out, I mean, I'm a good person because the good things balance out the bad things. And if that doesn't work, we do this. We compare. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not like him. I don't do the kind of things that she does. I don't do the kinds of things that they do. We, we try to stuff it by kind of casting that attention elsewhere. This is actually a well-documented psychological phenomenon. It's called the self-serving bias it works like this. We tend to attribute the positive things we do in life to our own character and the negative things we do in life to our circumstances. It's just a human thing that we do to preserve our self-esteem. So it goes like this. Um, if, if you're super patient with somebody and they're snappy at you, but you're real patient with them, you go away thinking, I'm a patient person. I handled that well. But if you're real snappy with somebody and you kind of bite their head off, you go away thinking like, I was hangry and I didn't get a lot of sleep last night and the look on her face, and you attribute it to the circumstances. If you get an A on an exam, you think, I'm really smart, I studied hard, I'm good at this. If you get an F on an exam, you think, that test wasn't really fair, those questions were confusing, that teacher's out to get me anyway. This is just a thing that we do. It's very well documented. There's thousands of studies. And the result of it is, we tend to think of ourselves a little bit more highly than we ought to. So one example, um, I'm not going to make you do this, but if I asked the drivers in the room to be honest, are you an above average driver? Raise your hand. 100% of you would raise your hand. They've done this study nationally. They did a huge random sample national study on this, and they asked people to rate how good of a driver on you from zero to 100. And only 11% of people admitted to being below a 74 from zero to 100. It's statistically impossible. We can't all be above average. By the nature of average, you just can't be. But it, with intelligence, with how good of a person you are, and with racism, which speaks to the things we've experienced just recently, people tend to really rate themselves as, I'm not really that racist as other people. Other people are more racist than I am. And it's because it's too painful to bring it out. And it really stops us from moving forward because it's such a stigma. You can't admit, like, yeah, I think these things, these things are in there. You can't be real. So you kind of have to push this stuff down. So most people stuff it. And you know, the problem with that is it keeps people from coming to Jesus. Because in Jesus, you have the one man in history that no matter the circumstances, no matter how life turned it up, no matter how stressful the situation got, he was always true through and through. Me, 
If you try to get on the train without letting me off first, we are enemies for life. (laughs) Jesus went to his crucifixion with this prayer on his lips, Father, forgive them. And he sees right through me. He sees right through each and every one of us. He looked right at Peter. He knows. He knows me. He knows the old me. He knows the Simon and the Peter. He knows. And so when you come to Jesus, you're coming to the truth. And if you're going to come to the truth, the truth is going to come out. And it's too painful. It threatens too much. And so it keeps a lot of people from Jesus. In a room this size, I think it's safe to say, it might just be keeping a couple of you from Jesus this morning. And that's a tragedy because Jesus said, it's the devil that wants to sift you. It's the enemy. It's the adversary that wants to pressure you, look for things to accuse you of, get that stuff to come out. But me, Jesus says, me? No, I'm, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you that your faith will be strong. And that when you turn back, you'll strengthen your brothers. What an incredible thought. Jesus is praying for you. You know, maybe you didn't grow up in a, a Christian home. Maybe you never had a mom or a dad that prayed for you. You don't have to worry about that anymore because Jesus is praying for you. So what do you do then? Well, Peter was determined, but this knocked that out. And then Jesus comes along and saves him from being defeated. And later on in John chapter 21, he's defeated. He goes back to what he knew. He goes back to fishing. He's back in the boat with his friends. And Jesus has appeared a couple of times after his death. But then this moment comes when a man comes along the beach. And this has been about three and a half years, so Peter doesn't put two and two together right away. But the man calls out to them. They've fished all night. They haven't caught anything. The man calls out to them, put your net over on the other side of the boat. And they do it. And they pull up so many fish, the nets start to break. And then John realizes it, and Peter recognizes it. It is the Lord. And Peter gathers up his robes and jumps out of the boat into the water. Now, the last time that Peter stepped out of the boat to get to Jesus, he walked on water. This time, he just flounders through it. He comes up on the beach, and Jesus has a little fire going. He's cooking breakfast for his disciples. Now, John, the guy who wrote this gospel, he does something really brilliant in this moment. He uses a word for the fire there in Greek. That's a, it's a word for a charcoal fire that you would cook on. And he only uses that word one other place in his whole gospel. The other place he uses it is for the fire in that courtyard when Peter gathers around with the servants. The gospels are brilliant. Just as literature, they're brilliant. So Peter comes up to this fire with Jesus, and Jesus pulls him aside and has another heart-to-heart. And he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. Now, we miss what's happening here in English because our language is not as expressive as Greek is when it comes to love. The Greek language has three different words for love. We just have the one. And there's two of those words are coming to play in this passage. When Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? He uses the word agape, which is the highest form of love. It's the total devotion self-sacrificial love. Agape love is the kind of love that good parents have for their kids, where I would give my life for you. Jesus says to Peter, do you agape me? And Peter responds, he doesn't use the word agape. He uses a different word. He uses the word phileo, which is a, a strong affection, more of a brotherly love. Phileo is, um, you know, the city of Philadelphia, the city of 
brotherly love. That's where that comes from. Phileo is the kind of love that, like, when you're out with one of your high school buddies and he's had one too many and he's like, I love you, man. That's phileo right there. So Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, yes, I love you as a friend. This is a shift. This is a different Peter. This is different from the Peter who said, I'm ready to go to prison or to death for you, Lord. This this is a Peter who's suddenly gotten kind of real. He's coming to the real Jesus, and he's getting real. Now, just like Peter denied him three times, Jesus asked him this question three times. Do you love me? Do you love me with a self-sacrificial total devotion? And Peter replies once and then twice, I love you like a friend. And then Jesus asks him the third time, and he switches it up the third time. The third time, Jesus uses the word phileo. He says, Peter, do you love me like a friend? And the text says that Peter was hurt that Jesus asked him this the third time. And Peter's response to him is about as real as you can get as a follower of Jesus. He says to Peter, or he says to Jesus, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Whatever that means when I say that I love you, whatever that's worth when I say that I love you, you know. That's about as real as it gets. He asks, do you even love me as a friend? And Peter says, you know all things. And then something incredible happens. When Peter brings his real self to Jesus, when he takes that image down that we all kind of project, that imaginary self that I like to think that I am, that I want to be, when he takes that down and brings the real Peter to Jesus, then Jesus makes a prediction over his life in that passage. He says, when you're old, you are going to be martyred for your faith. You're going to give your life for me. And history has borne that out, that Peter died by crucifixion just as his Lord did. And when If tradition is true, when he went to his crucifixion, he told his captors that he did not consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was, and he asked them if he could be crucified upside down. Peter went on to write parts of the Bible. He he waited for the Holy Spirit and depended on the Holy Spirit and preached what might be the greatest sermon in the history of the world, and 3,000 people were baptized, this regular guy. Something happened when Peter brought his real self to Jesus when he stopped projecting and image managing and brought his real self, Jesus got to work. And Peter ended up becoming the person that he had always kind of imagined himself to be or hoped himself to be. There's another way. When you fail, you can get determined or you can get defeated. Or you can do what Peter did. You can become more dependent Peter saw Jesus on the beach, and he gathered up his ropes, and he jumped out of the boat, and he swam to him to get to him. And I just wonder what would happen if, if we all did that, if we brought it to him, if we depended upon him. My three-year-old son, Rowan, he, for whatever reason, he hasn't learned how to lie yet. I don't, I don't know why, and I'm not complaining, but he just hasn't figured out yet that you can make up something that isn't true and then try to act like it is true and pass it off and convince people that it's true. He just hasn't figured that out yet. I know it's inevitable he's going to do it, but he has not yet. And so what that means is when he does something wrong, which he's a really good boy, but sometimes he, you know, writes on the wall or hits his little brother or something. When he does something wrong, he just tells me. So I'll be in the kitchen doing dishes and I'll hear his little brother, Leo, start screaming and 
in less than a minute, Rowan, my three-year-old, will come running into the room, and he'll go, Dada, I don't want Leo to play with Lightning McQueen. So I hit him. Even though he knows there's probably going to be a consequence, even though he knows he might get a timeout, which he hates, even though he knows this might be painful for him, he just comes and tells me. And here's what that does. I, I get to take Rowan by the hand, and I take him over to Leo, and I say, you've got to apologize. You've got to kiss his boo-boo. Brothers hug. Balance is restored to the universe. Everybody is okay, and we can move forward. I wish I was more like my son. I wish we were all a little bit more like my son. But we're, we're hiding We've been hiding since the start. Adam and Eve, the first two of us, they broke the only rule in paradise, and when God came looking for them, they did something that men and women have never done in the history of humanity. They hid, and we've been hiding ever since. But if you want to meet the real Jesus, you've got to be the real you. So I wonder, when you fail, when I fail, could you bring it to Him? Could you be brave and open up a little? Maybe share with somebody else if you've got someone that you can trust. But if you're not ready for that yet, could you at least bring it to Jesus? Be honest and straightforward with Him. Don't give up and don't give in. But depend on Him. I want to pray that you will. Lord, I pray that you would bring uh, everybody, myself included, in the sound of my voice to a new level of authenticity with you, and that if there are things lurking that haven't been said or that are being held back, that there would be some real conversations with you that happen this afternoon, right after this service. People would say things to you that they've been holding back and afraid to say for years even, but that you have known all along and been waiting for this moment when they get real. And I pray in your gracious love for us, the love that is about who you are and the value you place on us and not anything that we can do, that your Holy Spirit would rise up in us and set us free from these things and help us to be brave and honest and straightforward with you. Help us, Lord, to depend on you. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.